So the topic that we're speaking about this afternoon is uh, ordering worship services. And uh, so I'm going to present um, some ideas to you, most of which came from a book that's actually on the book table back there by, um, by Constance Cherry. Her name is Constance Cherry. And she, uh, she wrote, she's, wrote an, she's written a number of books, but the book that pertains mostly to this uh, topic is called The Worship Architect. The Worship Architect. And it's, there are copies still down here. I wonder if we can put those back uh, by the door may, uh, doorway there, maybe. Do you mind taking those back, Jamie? So um, it's fourfold. We're going to be talking about fourfold worship order and convergence worship. Sounds really fancy, but it's really not all that hard. And um, uh, you've got some handouts there. I, the first thing I've got here in in my is to talk about Kierkegaard just a wee bit. I'm going to just review very quickly. For those of you who have maybe not heard what Kierkegaard thinks. But Kierkegaard says we, that we wrongly get the idea that um, the congregation is the audience. And I mean, that's a fairly easy wrong in, in idea to get because you're down there and I'm up here. So we constantly have to be reminding our people that they're not the audience in worship and that this isn't like going to the show or the theater or whatever. It's different. So wrong thinking is that you're the audience and that I'm um, the, the performer and that God is, is the prompter. So in that model, God is whispering in my ear what I need to say to the audience. And Kierkegaard said that, that really what we need to be thinking is that I'm the prompter helping you, the actors in, in the drama of worship, do your thing. And God is the audience. So you are actually the players, the actors in the drama, and I'm just, help, I'm just cueing you as you worship God in corporate worship. And when we get the right idea of that, then worship becomes, the worship service becomes much more active from, from, the, from your point of view. And even just during lunch today, we had quite a discussion on how important it is for a worship service to be to have not, the, the, so that you're not just listeners, okay? You need to actively be involved in the, in the worship, and we'll talk about ways that we can do that. <clears throat> but one of the things that fight against us is the way we set up our services, especially in uh, modern churches, where um, the model seems to be more the theater kind of model, where the acoustics are really dead, so the congregation can't really hear themselves. You don't sense that you're a body. You sense like that you're alone in a group with a group of people. And it's a whole different idea, a whole different idea when you're in a group of people that you feel like I'm part of this body. I'm actually doing something corporately as opposed to I'm an individual in the midst of a crowd. So my wife and I go to Toronto all the time. We have two kids that live right downtown Toronto. So... I'm often walking down Young Street or around the Eaton Center there and stuff. And when I'm down there, I feel like I'm an individual in a crowd of people. That's totally different from Christmas Day when the house is just full of people, but I'm in my family. I'm there in the family. And I hear everything, and I experience everything, and every, I'm part of everything, rather than I'm an isolated individual in a swarm of people. So, and that's how we need to feel. We need to feel like we're a family and that we're doing things together. The lighting is important. I used to think, I remember when I used to think it was cool, when, you know, when they first started lowering the lights for the 
and, and having a spotlight on. And I go, uh, I was in a large church in those days, and uh, I have a whole bunch of spotlights on me. And I couldn't, I couldn't see anybody out there. It was dark out there, and it had spotlights on me. And, like, I was the show. I, I was the show, you know? It's easy to get, it's easy to start feeling that way, thinking that way. But really, I should, I should kind of have no lights on me at all. And the light should all be on you. Because you are the players in the drama of worship. So I don't, I don't like the... And then acoustically, it makes all the difference too. So that you can hear each other. Lots of reverberation. And make sure when you're singing songs that they're singable. There's so many cool songs these days but they're so complicated to sing. They're all syncopated, everything's off the beat. It takes me weeks to just get the worship team to figure out how to do them, right? It's sing songs that are singable for the congregation, so they're not focused on the song. They're focused on the God of the song. The other thing is uh, range. If If I'm Chris Tomlin or whoever... Like, I really know how to sing, right? I'm I'm a tenor. I've got to show off the top part of my range. And when he's doing a concert, that's awesome. Let's let's do it. Let's listen to it. I'm going to sit there and listen to your concert. That's cool, but that's not a worship service. Worship service means you. if you're not comfortable singing, then it's no good. You know what the Air Canada uh, motto is, right? Air Canada. We're not comfortable until you're not comfortable. <laughs> you have to be comfortable singing the songs that I don't want you to focus on the song. It's just the medium. The song is just the medium. But if you have to focus on it and be so complicated, it's so hard and you're all off track, then there's going to be problems. But as far as actually ordering worship, there's many different philosophies. I've, got, I've named some of them down there. The random approach is just going to, every act of worship stands on its own. So we're just going to throw them together, however. Blank, blank slate approach. Let's, let's do something different than we've ever done before. We're not going to do the same as last we're not going to do the same as last week. Let's keep it fresh and creative and entertaining. Thematic approach. Whatever the sermon topic is, everything else becomes subservient to that. And so that, that helps us order the service, if that's our approach. Fill in the blank approach. This is what we used to use 100 years ago when I first started out. We just do the same thing every week, right? You take this hymn out and put that hymn in. And then free-flowing free-flowing praise service made popular by John Wimber way back in the 70s. And uh, flow was the most important thing for him. And flow still is is certainly a factor. Um, it, It should always be a factor. But uh, he had this five-phase model, invitation, engagement, exaltation, adoration, and intimacy. The dialogical approach is really the one that I want to talk to you today about. And, And that's an approach where we try to get this conversation going between us and God, as it as it were, so that God speaks and the people listen and respond. So rather than have somebody up front speak, and you sit and listen, you try to have this um, dialogue taking place, not including me. The dialogue is between you and God. So I'm the prompter, I'm whispering in your ear, kind of helping you, directing you all, because you're a a big group of people, then I'm helping you as as a group of people to corporately respond and have this conversation between God and his people. Uh, Some worship approach, approach, uh, some approaches to worship result in God being the topic of the conversation. The dialogical approach, the goal is to have uh, you in partnership with in the conversation. So it's not just the topic, we're talking about God today, but you're actually engaging or you're a partner in the conversation. Um, and so we're going to 
We're going to um, look at some passages of scripture. There's actually an amazing number of scriptures where this outline, the fourfold, which is gathering, word, table, and sending, where this, um, where this approach is kind of mirrored in scripture. I'm surprised at how many there are. But we're going to look at one right now from Isaiah, one, uh, Isaiah 6, 1 to 9. So let's just turn there, if you've got your Bibles, and turn to Isaiah 6 for a minute. And look at this passage. So, 1 to 4. In the, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord... He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Hovering around him were mighty seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with the remaining two they flew. In a great chorus they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The glorious singing shook the temple to its foundations and the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. And so um, Constance Cherry is, is saying that this is uh, where God approaches or where God is encountered. So God's people meet God in, this, um, in the first four chapters here, the first four verses of this chapter. Um, then the person experiences discontinuity between the divine and the, and the human. So we, we recognize how great and glorious and holy God is and how inadequate we are in Isaiah 6, 5. Then I said, my destruction is sealed for I am a sinful man and a member of a sinful race, yet I have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. So suddenly... The, the writer, Isaiah, recognizes how sinful he is, the, the extreme amount of discontinuity between who he is and who God is. And then in Isaiah 6, 6 to 8, the following two verses, following three verses, God speaks. Then one of the seraphim flew over the altar, and he picked up a burning coal with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send as a messenger to my people? Who will go for me? And I said, Lord, I will go, send me. So in that passage, God speaks. And then at the very end of that passage, uh, the person responds. Isaiah responds, he says, who will go for us? I'll go, Lord, send me. And so in verse 9, um, and he said, yes, go, but tell my people this. You will hear my words, but you will not understand. You will see what I do, and so on. And so God sends people out. <clears throat> this is not the only place in Scripture that has this same type of um, structure. Exodus 3, 1 to 4. Um, Luke 1, 26 to 38. Matthew 14, 13 to 20, 23. Just to mention a few. And there are four primary sections or movements to this, as I've already said, the fourfold order. And uh, we sometimes refer to them as movements, if you like. So it, this, um, I'm going to give you another example from Luke 24, of whether it's come from, try to get through these fairly quickly so that we get uh, an idea of where it arrives in Scripture. Luke 24, 13. So this is the, uh, the, the 
occasion where Jesus appears to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And, uh, and it also illustrates the fourfold order. Now, the, this fourfold order is never prescribed in Scripture. It's important to remember that, I'm not, that we're not making this prescriptive, it's descriptive in certain areas. So movement one in this story is where Christ approaches his followers and initiates a conversation with them. So uh, 13 to 24, I'm not going to read that whole passage because I'm going to run out of time if I do that. But they're walking along and Jesus catches up with them and starts conversing with them. So that's movement one. Movement two is described in verses 25 to 27. And in my version, the New Living is what I'm reading from. Then Jesus said to them, you are such foolish people. You will find it so hard. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his time of glory? Then Jesus quoted passages from uh, the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures said about himself. So, movement two, Christ engages them in, in the scriptures, addressing their current circumstances, pointing them to passages about that talk about the Messiah. So this is the word section. Movement three is uh, 18 to 23. Verses 18 to 23, Christ, uh, the disciples urge Christ to stay longer with them. And uh, as a result, they had a time of intimate fellowship together, culminating in Jesus revealing himself to them in the breaking of bread. And that third movement, that third, first, third section, is what we, call, what we would do corporately as the Lord's table, a time of fellowship together with each other and also with the Lord. And then movement four is the sending. Uh, the disciples were overwhelmed with joy that Christ was alive and they were inspired to rush out and tell others that Jesus was alive. So there's the four, four movements. Uh, once again, uh, illustrated in scripture, not prescribed. These four movements provide a wonderful paradigm for the church to gather and worship. The church moves from a life in the world to an encounter with Christ. That's the, the, the gathering. So you've got people coming into the church and uh, they've had a bad experience in traffic already. Their kids have been giving them grief. Uh, some little kid, you know, dirtied his diaper as you were going out the door and all that stuff goes on. You get into church and you're really not thinking churchy thoughts sometimes, are you? So that's the gathering. That's, that's to help us just start encountering Christ in, in, in the trials and in the frustration and in the insanity of life. And then the second one, the word... And the word is primarily the scriptures. It's all about, and, and in this passage, uh, Jesus has uh, talked to them about um, scriptural passages that describe him as the Messiah. And then the table, and then the sending. So the fourfold order offers a macro level structure that can repeat, be repeated every week while providing plenty of room within each movement or section for a wide variety of worship elements. That's the most important thing in this whole talk, is right, is right there. Let me repeat that one more time. So the full four, to, I can't even talk. It was lunch, I think. The four-fold order offers at a macro level something that can be repeated every week, but it has enough variety in it that it is not monotonous or repetitive in any way because within each movement, there's a huge variety of things that you can do. This structure provides a dialogical progression. So it's 
everything that we do is dialogical. It's, it's trying to have a word from God and then an opportunity for the congregation to respond. So it's not just, I'm talking and you're listening, which is actually what I'm asking you to do right now, sorry. <laughs> this structure provides this dialogical approach. Uh, progression is biblical and offers a framework that allows opportunity for variety and stylistic diversity. So regardless of the fact that uh, this, is, this fourfold order is in place, it, it has no bearing on, on the style that you choose to do in your services. So it's stylistically neutral. You can do any style uh, within this form that you want to do. Uh, the fourfold order has precedent in scripture and in the early church history. And this alone gives us reason to serious, seriously consider this plan as a viable option for generally worshiping, ordering worship. The fourfold concerns itself with form and content, but not with style. So form, content, style. Those are the three things that we think about when we put an order of service together. The, this concerns itself with the form, and it concerns itself with the content, both of which are very important. It doesn't concern ourselves with style. You can use whatever style you want. And quite often we say you can use whatever style is appropriate for your gathering, for your church family. Uh, sometimes we try to force our style on the church family rather than letting the, the church family um, have an, a, an appropriate community, uh, collective kind of style of their own. Um, the gathering. Let's talk about the gathering. So the gathering is the first movement. And uh, everybody comes together. And um, they, uh, we recognize that God has taken the initiative to develop a relationship with you, to nurture a relationship with you. The purpose here is to take away some of the distractions that they've come into the building with and to get our hearts ready to be united on, in the, on the presence of God and on what we have coming in the service, the songs, the prayers, the scripture reading, and the other actions, to be prepared for that. The tone of the gathering is usually uplifting, joyful, celebratory, reminding the worshipers of the privilege it is of gathering together at the initiative, at the invitation, rather, of the Almighty. And that should be enough to celebrate without creating an artificial hype in the service. So the goal here in this gathering is to, be, is to celebrate the privilege of gathering with God in God's presence and with God's people and celebrating that, celebrating the joy of the resurrection that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Our goal is to celebrate that without artificially create, trying to create hype. I talked to a worship pastor not that long ago, um, and he said, my job in the church is basically happy, clappy, get everybody energized for the sermon. And he said that with a fair bit of despondency, actually, recognizing what a frivolous job he had if that was his only goal. So we're not trying to create artificial hype here, but we're trying to remind the congregation that we have a lot to celebrate. And as Christians, we do. We're the people that party the least, but we should be the people that party the most. Oh, you're not ready for that one, are you? No, not too much response. Um, the theme of the gathering, this opening section of the service progresses as a rule from general praise to spe specific reasons for praise. 
So if you want to highlight, if there's a theme for the day, whatever the theme might be, it might be based on the sermon or it might be a, a, a totally different theme that you base it on, um, you might want to go from general praise to more specific praise based on whatever that theme is. I always think it's really good to have some songs and scripture and so on on general praise and not just everything specific to one theme. That's what I think. I'm sure some of you are used to the idea that every single thing that happens in a service has to be devoted to a certain theme. And I'm not sure that I necessarily buy into that necessity. Uh, sometimes we do it and sometimes we don't do it. Sometimes we move from general praise to whatever the specific theme is. And normally in, in the gathering we move from uh, exuberant to a little more reflective tone. Now the content of the gathering can be a greeting, it can be songs, prayers, scripture reading, a call to worship, spoken or sung, it can be musical selection, it can be liturgical movement, it can be drama, testimonies. It, there can be a number of things at the very beginning that draw us away from our, the cares of the world into the presence of God and um, what God has to say for us. Uh, the greeting at the beginning of the service should be inviting but should acknowledge God's presence more importantly than the presence of those gathered. So many times I'm sure you've been into a service, you've gone to a service where it's, thank you so much for being here, thank you for coming, you're the most important. We, do you know what I'm saying? And, and we gather you so happy that you've joined First Church to worship with us and everything. And... We really want to draw people's attention to the fact that we're here, we're so excited that God's here. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't welcome the people or that you shouldn't put value on people being here, but the real emphasis and what we're really trying to achieve at the very beginning of the service is that God's here. And we've come together to meet God. And isn't it cool the way we're here as a family and isn't it cool here that we are all connected by the, the Spirit of God? We're, we're branches in a vine. Eh? Cool? All right. Okay. Um, there's, I've got quite a bit of material in there in those notes, and I'm going to skip through things a little bit because I don't want to run out of time. Am I supposed to be done at quarter after? Yeah? Okay. Okay, any questions on the gathering? Um, you see under section D, uh, there's gathering acts, acts of praise, confession, forgiveness, opening prayer. Those are possible, that's a possible pattern for the gathering. I'm so used to taking questions in class, I just automatically said that, but I'd be happy to have you ask a question if you want as we go through it, as you think about it. All right, let's move, move on then. <clears throat> uh, the second movement is what we call the word. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we haven't had scripture reading already. I noticed that Lee uh, led, to, uh, led us, he read one and he had us read along. That was, that was cool. Lee's obviously one of my, my students, my graduates, and uh, so he, he involved you already right at the very beginning in scripture reading so that you could read along and you weren't just sitting there listening to everything. But just because the word is the second movement of this fourfold order doesn't mean that you can't have scripture in other places. So hopefully, maybe even at the very beginning, as a call to worship, you read a passage of scripture instead of made up your own um, opening. But the second movement is primarily about the word, and it's primarily God speaking to his people. And primarily, it's going to be scripture reading and message. Scripture reading and message is primarily what the second, second fold is. The purpose of uh, the second fold is um, hearing from God 
rather than learning about God. Do you understand the difference? That we actually hear from God rather than learning from a learning about God. We live in a, we live in a, a culture that puts a great deal of emphasis on education. And Christian education is um, only part of the goal. Because if, if you hear a lot about God and you learn a lot about God and your focus is on the learning rather than on the God, then you're not going to be a very strong Christian. We do have to learn about God if we know what he wants to do, but I mean we've got to do it, right? So the action of obeying and applying is very, very important. And in Bible college... Uh, We run into this all the time because the danger is that students can start to take the Bible, the Word of God, as a textbook. It's just one other textbook, and I've got to learn this stuff to pass the test, and I've got to regurgitate it. And there's no point in learning all that stuff if you're not going to if you're not going to put it into play. If you're not going to actually act on it, if it doesn't touch your heart, if it doesn't make you softer rather than harder, right? And that's what we have to do in, in, in our church services as well. It's not, just, it's not just learning about God, it's hearing from God. So that's primarily the purpose. And the content can be, if you want to make the, the word section more dialogical, we can have... Um, Things like a prayer of illumination, maybe at the beginning, which is, I think is really cool. And lots of times pastors will do that um, before their message, a prayer of illumination. You can have a song of, of, of uh, response after every point. There's three points to a message. You could have a song of response between the three points. You have video clips or drama or testimonies as a response. So that people are not just a passive listener. They're, they're actually an active listener. And they're participating in the sermon with response. Uh, there's a possible sequencing of elements here under the word section. And um, that's just a possibility. There's all kinds of options. Any questions on the word section of, the, of this order? Okay, the next section is what we call the table. And... Um, if you have, if you're in a church where there's communion every Sunday, then this is actually going to be your response. This is the response to the sermon. Jesus instituted the celebration of the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal with his disciples, as recorded in Luke and Matthew, uh, Mark, and 1 Corinthians. The text makes it clear that this was intended to be a memorial feast that was repeated over and over for all Christ followers for all times. And I I mentioned earlier this morning how this memorial feast is a reminder. It tells God's story. It repeats again and again every Sunday the magnitude of Christ coming and dying and being uh, risen and going into glory on our behalf, all in one symbolic gesture. I always thought it would be so cool to be in a church where we actually got together and ate dinner together, and that would be our communion thing. And um, I pushed the idea. I was pesky enough that finally at our church we're doing that. So it's uh, it's only once a a quarter, uh, but we do have we have communion as a family around the, the tables, and it's it. I think it's super cool. I can tell you're really impressed with that. Um, The purpose of the table not only offers an opportunity for appropriate and corporate response to the word, but it effectively dramatizes the gospel story through symbol and action. This act of worship enacts and celebrates the story of how God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Christ from the dead, overcame the powers of evil, and offers us forgiveness, healing, love, and, a power, and power for victorious living. So if we examine the three aspects, there are three aspects to communion or to the Lord's table. 
And uh, three terms that's used in the Bible. There are three different terms used to refer to this. The Lord's Supper is one of them. And the Lord's Supper implies uh, the solemn tone, the reflection um, of Christ's suffering and death and what uh, that meant. Uh, it, it, it emphasizes confession and, identify, and identification with Jesus. So that's the Lord's Supper. The, the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving. And it emphasizes joy and celebration. So on one hand, we, we think about um, Christ's death as a, a sad thing, as we think about how he suffered for us or how he had to suffer for us so that we could have eternal life and so on. But on the other hand, the Eucharist thing is thanksgiving, joy, and celebration because that's what happened. We have good reason to celebrate and be joyful because he did that for us. And now we can have communion with him. We can have a relationship with God because of what he did. We can have eternal life. And so we're celebrating. We're celebrating Christ's victory over death and hell and sin. The third term that's used is communion. And the, the emphasis here on, on the communion is seen in Acts 2.42 and um, uh, most clearly articulated in 1 Corinthians 10 with using the word koinonia is our sharing and our fellowship together at the table. So the emphasis here, the community, uh, communion is community. Um, participation, sharing, fellowship around the table, um, and, and kind of a supernatural fellowship that we have uh, th- through the Holy Spirit. Um, the convergence model is the combining of the historical, dialogical, I think I've said that stuff already. Okay, so at any one particular time, you might decide to emphasize one of the different themes in communion and have the focus on celebration. So rather than really sad, quiet music, which I think seems to be uh, the stronger tradition, we might want to have communion where the whole, whole thing is joyful and we actually focus on celebrating the reality that, we, that, that this death, burial, and resurrection gave us the opportunity to have a relationship with God. And we're thanking him, and we're praising him, and we're excited of what, what opportunities this actually has brought to us. Any questions on that? Yes, sir. Have you ever done any movement done where people are not sitting in the pews and the elements come to them, but you're getting people up out of the pews and moving? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you brought that point up because I... Um, I, I don't even even have that in our notes actually but um, quite often in communion at least every other time and maybe more more often than that we'll provide an opportunity for people to come up to the front and the elders will be up the front or kind of to the side so it's not quite so obvious but um, ask people to come up as we're singing and uh, and we will anoint people with oil uh, when they come up, or we'll just pray for them if they have a need, and so on. And, so, and sometimes there'll be line, lineups of people wanting to be prayed or prayed for, or even uh, pray a blessing over them during this communion time. So, yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a great that's a great um, reminder. And again, it's a, it's an opportunity for people to actually participate in that. I actually also like the idea of people coming forward to get communion. That's what you were talking about, wasn't it? Um, I have been in churches where this, where this is done, and I, I personally really like doing that because I am making the effort, even though it's somewhat of a symbolic effort, to come and partake myself rather than having it handed to me. It's kind of so I do like I really do like coming forward that way. Yeah, good call. Thank you. Anybody else? If you don't do communion every Sunday, there is an alternative response. 
uh, built into this. It's also it's still the third movement in the fourfold order, but it's um, it's some kind of other intentional response or reflection from the preaching and from the word. A biblical example of this is found in, in Acts chapter 2, where we read the account of the first Christian worship gathering. After, people, after Peter preaches a sermon, there is a record of many levels of response that results from his sermon. Um, there is an emotional response. It says that people were cut to the heart. There's a spiritual response when they repented. There's a symbolic response because the many were baptized right there and then. There's an action response as people demonstrated their response in uh, practical ways and for the benefit of others. So whereas the word is both informational and formational, the response is, is just primarily formational. So remember that, that the word is both informational and formational. It's not just intake of inf- information, but it actually forms us as we hear the word given. And the response is most, mostly formational because it provides an opportunity um, for us to surrender, commit, um, confess, and so on. And some of the possibilities for um, ordering that section is also, I think, in your notes. Um, Prayers, testimonies. uh, This is a great place to put your offering because um, the offering is a worship response, isn't it? It's, It's maybe the most sacrificial thing we do all day on Sunday. But it's a response to the Um, to the love of God. Okay, the fourth movement then is the sending, and it's going to be likely the shortest of all, but it could potentially be uh, one of the most important as well. Uh, Many churches in our tradition practice singing of a closing hymn or a quick benediction, and then the dismissal of the congregation. Quite often, we're out of time. We, we see that clock back there, and we're thinking, oh, no, i got to let these people go because Sarah Smith back there is going to yell at me because her Sunday dinner is burnt, right, at home? And uh, so we're rushing the end, but this, this part is very important. And the pur- purpose is twofold. Uh, the two main parts of the, ben- is, uh, of the sending is the benediction and then the charge. So the benediction is um, a blessing. The first component is, is a blessing, words spoken to another on behalf of God. The second component is a charge, a challenge. It reflects the purpose for the blessing. So a charge will often begin with the words go. Go make disciples or go out into the world and be salt and light or whatever the charge is. A challenge based on the word and the response that we've always had, that we've already had. And so if you respond to the word in your heart, this sending is a challenge to go and do something about it. And that's also a very important component. It's to hear from God, to respond to that, but then to do something about it. And that's what the sending is meant to do. If we have been, a, if we have been changed as a result of being in God's presence, we must leave with a sense that we have been changed and empowered for a special purpose. God's purpose for worship is to make changed hearts that change the world. Changed hearts that change the world. Um, any questions about this fourfold worship order? I'm actually done a little bit early. Yes, sir. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this model is not based on the 
you have 20 minutes for music, and uh, I need 50 minutes for sermon. It's, um, it's, it's more, it's what um, Lester Ruth calls a blended, where the different aspects of the service are blended together to make uh, a more balanced whole. So maybe we don't have a 45-minute sermon, but we actually spend 10 minutes on reading this, the Word of God in shorten the sermon a little bit. Or if there's communion, um, it depends on your culture as far as, as the length of time for every section. But um, I think every section is significantly important. This, this model, many of our churches have moved to a model where there's X amount of minutes for worship and this amount of minutes for sermon. And that those are the only two components that really make any difference. This model's not like that, obviously. Yes, sir? Well, you probably have somebody come in and do a seminar or something and convince them that this is a really important model to use. And then I, I would encourage you to, to actually have them read the book maybe or uh, have a seminar on it, maybe read the book and discuss chapters as it goes through because there's actually a lot of spiritual value in the book. It's I'm kind of abbreviating things and putting it in just... Um, not just short form, but I'm taking out some of the important theological components because we don't have time. But um, I think that would be a great study to have your, your lay leaders go through and uh, recognize that this is an important model. And, and even within the fourfold um, mentality or, or uh, structure, there's lots of room for variety for different leaders to do things in different ways still, but, but still with the same... Uh, major focus. Yes, sir. Um, I personally think that announcements fit best in the sending. So, so we've we've had this in an encounter with God, and now here's some opportunities to get involved or to get participated to participate in this week. Some of them are in the church and some of them are in the community. And I, th- I think that's where it fits best in my own mind, actually at the end and not at the beginning. I always cringe when the service starts with too much talking um, and li- talking and listening at the beginning. I try to, people don't always pay attention to my, I, I, put, I, put, times on every, I put times on everybody or on the order for everybody to follow. They don't, don't always pay attention to me. but um, yeah any other questions oh sorry Corey yeah so the the movement that I'm seeing is a lot big you're talking to everybody talk big uh, I just want to talk to you the the movement seems to be towards a ancient modern yes and that's what the convergence is it's an ancient model but infused with whatever contemporary stuff you want to put in. Yeah. So how do we do this? With I'm, I'm sure that a lot of us have people from different traditions coming to our church now because the allegiance to denominations seems to be kind of breaking. Uh, how do we include that without it becoming the liturgy becoming legalistic? So how do you kind of navigate that and teach that to your people in a way that isn't just hey, so we're doing this because we want you to understand. Right. I think that you can do the fourfold uh, uh, structure without the people even knowing what you're doing because there is so much creativity and freedom within each aspect, within each movement, that they won't necessarily 
consciously think, oh, we're moving into the ascending section now. Do you know what I'm saying? And even if you don't, if you don't use any model, we all fall into patterns of habit. And we, we all, we all form liturgies. And regardless of how hard we try sometimes to smash the, um, the models of the past, we create models of our own. Uh, sometimes I'm invited to go to churches and I have been told, you may not wear a suit. <laughs> and they're, they're giving me a dress code. You have to wear jeans or whatever, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we, we, we're uncomfortable with the... Um, with the dress code of the past and and I like I wear jeans to church it's I have a purpose for that but I wear jeans to church a lot and and it it creates a lot of angst for people but but we all create our own traditions that we think are the best and that everybody has to conform to and especially as you get older you have to think through every tradition that you have and am I falling into a rut but within each movement of the full fourth order, there's lots of opportunity for creativity and new, newness. And that's one of the reasons why I have a creative team to help, uh, help me see things objectively, help me to be creative. Um, we even help the senior pastor even in his preaching and how, he, how he's going to respond to the scriptures and respond to the congregation on something. Keep us, yeah. Yes. And yet, so he wants me to be creative with all the time except for like, he wants that much time every single time. And uh, that can be really hard sometimes. When I'm in the I want him to go 35 and he says, can't do it. Yeah. Have you ever considered maybe like assassination? <laughs> Yeah, oh, your father-in-law. Twice as much reason. <laughs> I have definitely had those kinds of scenarios where um, I'm, I'm not the boss, but, but I have been in churches where I am the boss of the sermon, of the, not the sermon, <laughs> the boss of the whole service. And so... The, where the senior pastor has allowed me to tell him what time he, he gets in the service, which is very cool. And I'm not telling you who that guy is because you'll take my job. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Um, maybe have him read the book. I don't know. Maybe he'll get convinced. Maybe the Holy Spirit will actually touch his life. I'm kidding. <laughs> Any other questions? I'm getting punchy now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'm done, Barry, on time. Thank you. Thank you.